Welcome to Tipping Point, a new podcast from Merger Market, where we cut out the noise and bring you the news and views that matter on the world of M&A. I'm your host, Tom Kane, broadcasting today from New York City. Today's episode is brought to you by our sister product, Activist Monitor. As we enter a new decade, shareholder activism has shifted away from its historical focus on small cap companies with some level of dysfunction. And the focus is increasingly on larger, more successful and better performing companies, where the activist comes in with a thesis which is often some form of M&A or capital allocation. So to discuss some of these shifts in the market, our guests today are Keith Gottfried, who heads up the shareholder activism defence practice of Morgan Lewis, and Ed Mullane, North America editor for Activist Monitor. Keith, Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here today. Thanks, Tom. Fantastic. Well, Keith, just starting with you, could you talk us through this shift from deep value to better companies? How, how's that evolved over the years from your perspective? Yeah, so, you know, when, when um, you look back to the, the era post-financial crisis when we were seeing um, substantial uh, uptick in activism activity and a real evolution uh, of, of shareholder activism as a as an investment uh, class or a, you know act, investment activity, you know there was a lot of focus on deep value investments. You know on the kind of disciples of Benjamin Graham of looking for these deep value um, stocks with a high level of illiquidity, uh, and there was a lot of those that were caused post financial crisis. And then we we moved a decade later. And, and now activism has, has matured. You have a lot more activist hedge, fund, hedge funds out there. And, and there's a lot more interest in large cap companies. And I think one of the reasons for that is that there's been so much capital that's flowed to some of these large cap activist funds that if you've got $20 billion to put to work, you're not going to move the needle much if you're investing in companies with a market cap of of 100, 200 million, and you're not going to be able to make a lot of money uh, with those those small micro cap, nano cap investments. So I think the largest catalyst for large cap activity has been how much money some of these activist funds have uh, uh, to put to work. And then I think there's also, you know, the, the opportunity to enhance the value of their investment if they put a billion dollars to work, and and maybe there's a 20 percent. Uh, upside, well, 20% of a billion is 200 million, um, and that's a lot more than they can make in a small cap. And then I would also just just add a further thought that the risk in these larger names is is substantially, at the end of the day, even though they're putting more capital to work, is substantially less uh, because there is a lot of liquidity and a lot of interest in these in these quality names. Interesting points there uh, regarding uh, you know, that shift and, and how, as you put it there, the catalyst, the main catalyst is how much money these funds have. Ed, in your experience over the last year or so, do you agree with that? What particular themes have you noticed that are, are driving these dynamics? Well, I think in, uh, in 2019, what we saw was a good amount of flexibility to find resolutions. Um, there were a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiation with parties to work on uh, finding common ground. Total campaigns were very consistent with uh, the figures the last five years. Uh, we've averaged 
you know, around 200 campaigns now for quite a while. And, but there were a, a good amount of campaigns that did not uh, drop in the number of campaigns that actually went to vote last year. There were 30 campaigns, about 30 campaigns that went to vote in 2019. That's down from about 47 in 2018. Um, so it's a sign that there's a lot more quieter engagement. A few examples, uh, Starboard settled with Cerna without any mention uh, of uh, a campaign or negotiations in any filing or any press report. And it appears that AT&T and Elliott reached some sort of resolution without a settlement. Um, we also saw it with Elliott also striking a resolution with SM- SAP, where they actually disclosed their position the day that they uh, sort of announced where SAP came out and said it was taking certain steps over time to uh, uh, enhance value by forming a special executive board and improve its operating performance. So um, that, that's a lot of what uh, I saw, uh, you, know, you know, last year in our reporting. You mentioned a couple of campaigns, and I think if you look back over the last six months, we've seen some very interesting campaigns, both on the activism and, and ESG side. So Elliot's letter to AT&T, for example, BlackRock's ESG letter to its investors, those spring to mind. What does that tell us about where engagement is going? I think it's it's becoming a lot more sophisticated. You know, the Blackstone letter, I think, came out to like 2,600 words. It was used. The Elliott letter was was something like on the, on the magnitude of uh, over 8,500 words. These are, are massive uh, pieces of thought that are being put in, into these letters. And it sort of shows, from my perspective, you know, just the level of sophistication that uh, – you know, these investors are taken into account when, when they are entering these campaigns. Keith, so we mentioned briefly capital allocation and M&A um, being a, a big theme in, in terms of this kind of new, newer form of activism. What are the, some of the main demands that you're seeing on that side? And do they vary from situation to situation or, or can we pick out some key themes? Yeah, yeah. So, Tom, seeing um, that um, you know, as we see more activists head into the large cap space and, and show a preference uh, for large caps, there, there's clearly you know a preference for situations where there is some level of M and A opportunity um, in arguments where they could you know possibly be able to walk the company into a process into a strategic review process, maybe maybe there's a belief that there is a conglomerate discount because there's a bunch of disparate businesses that have been strewn together. And one demand that we see from time to time is form a strategic review committee maybe with one or more of uh, you know the uh, new directors that the activist has suggested. But definitely, even in the large cap space, I mean, we... We historically saw it in the small caps where it was an easy play like this is a subscale company and doesn't shouldn't be a public company anymore it should definitely be sold and and there was a roll-up strategy in a particular industry let's say semiconductors and so all the companies that these the nano cap semiconductors kept getting hit we saw that in retail also small cap but now we're seeing in large cap where you can't make the argument that they're subscale there's just the argument that you know, you could be bigger by combining this this five billion dollar company with another five billion dollar company, and so those M and A demands 
we're seeing those being made on on a fairly uh, frequent basis. And would you say, looking at various industries and areas of the market, is there any particular area that that is more most ripe for that form of activism in 2020? Yeah, so I don't think that there is any industry that is immune. I mean, we used to view certain regulated industries as maybe having certain barriers, but I think today the activists have gotten so sophisticated, particularly the larger ones, that you know they're they're not hesitant to go into a regulated industry that once might have thought might have been viewed as impregnable. To go along with that, uh, some of the industry focus, you know, if an industry does underperform, you're seeing immediate reaction in terms of uh, activists for the most part. You know, last year we calculated 48 campaigns in industrials, and this was up from 34 the previous year. And with some concerns about the Fed raising rates in uh, 2017 and a manufacturing slowdown uh, that sort of registered in 2018, you know, these stocks did get hit, and when they did get hit, you did see, you know, activists jump in there, you know, quite quickly. So looking ahead to, to this year in particular, does the, uh, does the election have any bearing on the kind of activity that you anticipate, or, or is that less of a factor? I don't, think that the, uh, I don't think that the election is really having much of an impact on, on activism right now. It, it certainly, the change of administrations has really has really not had much of a much of an impact on activism. I think there was always there was some speculation that maybe it would, and we would get into this much more pro-business environment. Uh, but that hasn't. I haven't really seen the uh, you know the the current administration really have much of a an impact on activism activity. You know, I think to to go along with that is in the previous point about performance. Activists really seem to be sticking to you know what they've always wanted to focus on, and, and that's that performance issue or trying to improve performance or create some catalyst. You know, in the conversations we have with people, you know, the the political side really does not come up very often. Okay. Yeah. If I could just add on the performance piece, I mean, what's what's also interesting today is, you know, it used to be you know with this focus on the dysfunctional and these are really low performers, and now. Even the high-performing companies are relatively, let's say, well-performing companies are getting hit. It's just that the argument's being made, but I know you're high, you know, you're, you're performing you know, well you know, north of the median, but there's two or three other companies that are your peers that are performing better, and how come you're not performing as well as those other companies? So somehow that's a benchmark, that's a relevant benchmark, but they're not like sub-performers. They're not poor performers. They're just not performing as high as the highest company in their particular, you know, industry or SIC code. And, and that's an interesting point because the two of the campaigns where the companies were good performers were SAP and Cerna. And both of those campaigns were uh, sort of, they reached agreement uh, privately. You know, there, there was no formal campaign launched. And it really focused, the resolution seemed to focus around three to five year time frames you know, manage your costs better, you know, improve margins. Um, so that's, it, it, it's interesting how you see the shift to better companies. So going back to the performance piece, and, and you mentioned that the, the companies that might be targeted are, are necessarily going to be poor performers, but what do companies need to be thinking about ahead of time 
you know, so a couple of things that they could be doing is is preparing an internal white paper on the company and saying if an activist was going to come and criticize the company, what are the what are the top ten things that the activists would focus on? Whether or not those are those are performance, whether it's M and A, it's capital allocation, um, cost optimization. What would the what would that critique look like? And then what's our answers for those? And are there any of these areas of criticism that we could proactively address? And of course, you know, I, I, I skipped over ESG and governance and those things, and those are all significant. And but but really thinking about those things early on, maybe with you know incorporating multiple perspectives, maybe talking to some of your institutional investors and doing some more investor perception studies, maybe getting advice from your financial advisor or consultants. And, and, and doing some of that work internally um, and really understanding what are the obvious paths to unlocking shareholder value and, and why do these make sense or if they don't make sense, why, why is it that we can't, we can't pursue them and maybe getting out in front of that and explaining on the calls with the investors why those paths to unlock value, um, even though they look obvious, you know, are, not so, are, are not really uh, things that are practical. And are, are uh, most companies uh, proactive in, in terms of listening to what you're advising in, in those situations? I would say that while more companies are doing break glass exercises, um, to date it has more been a check the box as opposed to a real thorough, intensive review of, of how do we preempt an activist investor from being able to chase a value anomaly. How do we get rid of a value anomaly is not something that most companies that I've seen are proactively doing. That's an interesting point. And just from your perspective, Keith, and as, as an advisor, how has your own approach to advising your clients changed over the last couple of years? Yeah, you know, so when I, uh, when I talk to clients about preparing for an activist, from my perspective, you know, and I, and I, I will tell them, you know, you know, of course we want to look at some of the structural, you know, defenses and make sure that, you know, we have appropriate structural defenses, you know, bylaws and, you know, shelf poison pill if need be. But I think the most important thing to be prepared for in, in avoiding a proxy fight uh, would be um, to uh, have a plan for engagement. That engagement has become so critical and, and the activists have been much more willing to engage privately behind the scenes for a longer period of time is that companies need to be prepared for how they approach that engagement. So the activist calls up and says, I, I want to talk to your CEO. You know, what's the plan? What's the action plan for having that meeting and making that meeting productive and that's the, an area where I, I try to push my clients more in that direction. But again, you know, there is a certain level of inertia on the part of some companies on the willingness to, to do that planning on a, on a day when there's not an activist uh, chasing the company. Got it. Well, we touched on quite a few themes. I'd just like to wrap up by asking you both, what would be the top three things to look out for in the activism landscape this year? I think one trend that emerged last year 
not only in the activism side, but it's also occurring on the MNA side, is the creation of these uh, SPACs or, or SPVs, however you want to call these special purpose vehicles. One of the new activists last year, Callaghan Partners, there were two partners who came from well-known activist backgrounds, but rather than raising a fund, they just raised money to, for a particular campaign. And I think they, the first one they did was Target Knowles. I don't know if they're still, you know, taking that approach, but it seems that if you're going to be a new fund and want to get started, these special purpose vehicles are, are being used. And it also seems from some chatter that some of the larger funds are beginning to take this approach as well. So rather than raising a big pool of capital and then deciding when you're going to put that to work, you're beginning to see people uh, pitch the idea to limited partners and then uh, they raise the capital for either that specific purpose or something similar to that. And you're also beginning to see that in the M&A market as well. So I think that could be an interesting trend uh, that it continues to emerge uh, this year. Keith, would you add anything in terms of the top things to look out for yeah. this year? I would, um, Tom, see a continuing shift towards those quality uh, companies, high-quality companies, the larger companies, um, more activism overseas. We saw a significant uptick in activism in Asia last year and, and new funds being started in Asia. I mean, some of the activism historically in Asia was, was led by U.S.-based investors. I think you're going to see more foreign invest, investment funds uh, uh, develop. And I think you're going to continue to see more behind-the-scenes uh, engagement where the activist, you know, doesn't go public so early and maybe does a bunch of things to avoid having to go public, like increased use of derivatives to avoid having to file a 13D uh, so that they can engage with the company through a prolonged period of time before having to, uh, to make it into a public spectacle. Thanks both of you for your answers. So a lot to look forward to on the activism front this year. Just to sum up there, continuing shift to quality, more activism overseas and more behind the scenes engagement, as well as the use of, of new structures, for example, on the, the special purpose vehicle side. So it should be a, a very interesting year on the activism side. I wanted to say thank you both to Keith and Ed for appearing on the show today. That wraps up our discussion. And this podcast was brought to you today by Activist Monitor. All right. Thanks for listening to Tipping Point, the show where we cut out the noise and we bring you the news and the views that matter most on the world of M&A. Please subscribe and share, rate and like, and follow us on social media to get updates for the next episode.